Blog Talk Radio. another Wednesday night edition of Sports Conversation on the Fight Network. I'm Don Henderson. Look forward to a great show tonight. We've got some very, very good guests, some interesting conversation, and we'll get to that in just a couple of seconds. We've got Roy Cummings, as always, in Tampa, Florida. 
And, of course, Roger Henler is in Atlanta, Georgia, and we'll get through the guest list in just a couple of moments. But first of all, we got to go to our executive producer, Frank Carroll. He's got two things he wants to touch on. First of all, uh, a dedication. And secondly, one of our colleagues, Leo Haggerty, has been in the hospital. We'll get an update on that as well. Frank? Okay. Thanks, Don. Uh, as you know, uh, Friday the 11th is uh, Veterans Day, and we're dedicating the program to not only the veterans that have been out there that fight, that fought their, their, their spent their time to make things free for us, but also we're dedicating the uh, program to the Gold Star parents, those who've lost a veteran, those who've lost someone very close to them who didn't come back from the war. Um, that, that's the first part. The second part is Leo is coming along. Uh, he's not out of the woods yet. Um, it's my understanding that uh, he had to go back in for some more surgery earlier this week, and I haven't gotten an update from Paulie yet, but uh, I'll be talking to him later on. All right. So we'll get right into the show now. We always go to Roy Cummings first in Tampa, Florida, and, uh, well, we can't get away from the game uh, with the Bucks' last outing against the Rams. Roy, I'll tell you, what a terrible game, but the 45-year-old <laughs> with seven seconds to go won it in the end. <laughs> yeah, uh, and before we get into that, guys, uh, I want to let you know that uh, I went to church with Leo on uh, Saturday night uh, and uh, sat with him uh, through the service uh, here in Tampa, and he's in, he's in great spirits. Uh, he's feeling pretty good. Uh, he was about to begin his radiation treatments the next day. He was going to get uh, uh, fitted for a mask that he has to wear for that. But uh, he's he's in great spirits and feeling pretty good, all things considered. Uh, he's hoping that he's uh, over the biggest hump, but he knows he's got some hurdles ahead of him uh, with the treatment he's got to get going forward. But um, anyway, just wanted to pass that along because uh, he's in good spirits, and uh, he and I exchanged some other texts uh, Sunday and Monday as well, so uh, hopefully he's doing Great. well, and uh, I'll, I'll try to do my best to keep you everybody informed as to where he is, but uh, yeah, he, he's extremely thankful for all the thoughts and all the prayers, and I know everybody, uh, everybody that knows him is certainly uh, pushing for him, pulling for him. I think he's going to be, hopefully Roy, he's going to be just, I just Can I follow up with you, Arliss, since we're talking about Leo, can, will, uh, can you, uh, he accept text? If I send him uh, uh, notes and things, yeah, he's out of the hospital, yeah. and uh, as I said, he's he's just now um, uh, beginning some treatments uh, that he's okay. he's got to go he's got, he's got to get treatments daily. But uh, he is he's um, he's he's a little bit more uh, acceptable of text right now because he's uh, uh, as far as I know anyway, uh, unless something has changed dramatically in the last couple of days that I didn't hear about. Um, he was, yeah, he and I exchanged texts. I think he'd be happy to hear from, hear, hear from anybody. Okay. Great. Okay. Oh, but, and so on to the football. Yeah. You know, it was amazing guys. The Buccaneers played about 48 good seconds. Uh, certainly the offense uh, played about 48 good seconds in that game. And, and it was enough to win them a game, which is uh, really remarkable uh, considering where these two teams the Rams and Buccaneers have fallen. Guys, it, it's it's just amazing. I, I can't remember the last time the two teams that were in the NFC Championship game. In fact, I don't think it's ever happened. I think this was brought up maybe during the, during the game at some point, but I think the, it was the first time that two teams had played in the NFC Championship game the year before 
or face each other in the playoffs the year before, were both uh, below 500 this deep into the season uh, and that far below 500 uh, and playing each other uh, a year later. And it's really remarkable. And then, you know, you you break it down and you look at, you know, the issues that both teams are having, um, you know, running the ball, scoring, uh, stopping opposing offenses. It's just amazing what happened. And, you know, it was more of the same throughout this game. I mean, neither team played well. Um, it uh, was just a matter of uh, the, the Rams really, really doing a poor job, in my opinion, guys, uh, with their last possession. I, I can't get out of my mind the Cooper Cup uh, pass that uh, well, out into the flat where Cooper Cup basically just kind of slid and took a took it down to try to keep the clock rolling when he had about four or five yards ahead of him that he could have easily gotten the first down uh, and, you know, just play it normally. Even if you end up out of, out of bounds uh, on that play, you've got the first down, which is what they needed. They were first down away from winning and didn't. But it, to me, it just uh, exemplifies everything that has happened uh, with both of these franchises. They're just completely off center. They're, they're, they're so out of, uh, uh, you know, off kilter. It's, it's just incredible how poor – uh, both teams are playing right now, and I don't know that it's going to change anytime soon. You would get the, you would think that possibly the Bucks can uh, can get some uh, momentum uh, out of this victory. Uh, you know, they they escape with a victory. Uh, they look good for 48 seconds offensively, largely because uh, the the Rams play just such a soft defense. But at the end of the day, a win's a win, and you take what the, uh, the you know the the opponent gives you, and they basically gave them a touchdown. So we'll see what it does, but. Um, Tough, you know, tough order for the Bucks now, uh, going on the road facing a, a hot Seattle team, uh, and and really on the road, uh, going uh, over to, over to Munich to play this game. So we'll see how it all shakes out uh, Sunday morning. One other thing before I let Roger jump in, and that is that uh, <clears throat> that surprised me a little bit. All during the season, uh, really during the one of that exhibition season, whatever you want to call it, number ten got the ball a lot. I mean, he caught a lot of passes and and uh, non. You know, nothing situations, but he caught the ball. And he drops one in the end zone, which would have been a touchdown, which would have given him the opportunity to not get out of the last seven seconds of the game. But more importantly, as you just pointed out, Roy, the Rams just so soft on the outside. They gave Brady all the room in the world to just throw the ball. He, after, the, after he dropped the ball in the end zone, he threw him three straight passes on the sidelines. He caught all three, took it out of bounds, and gave him a chance to win the game. I got to give Brady a little credit. He went right back to him. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And uh, two things there. First of all, I think that defensive, uh, you know, breakdown by by the Rams, it, it's all on um, it's all on Raheem Morris. I mean, he's calling that defense, clearly playing a prevent three three rushers, uh, three pass rushers against Tom Brady in a critical situation. You know, needing to go sixty yards and. Uh, and just, you know, I understand the, the concept of keep the ball in front of you, but um, at some point you've got to make a play. You can't let them just go down the field the way they did. And, you know, you start off with a, you know, a 28-yard pass down the seam. Uh, well, well that, just, that just gives you all the momentum right there. You've got to change something up at that point defensively, and it didn't happen. And, um, but you're right. Uh, you know, something that Tom Brady said, uh, about uh, the drop passes was that he doesn't mind drop passes. That doesn't bother him a bit. He says, hey, we all make mistakes. I make bad passes. You know, guys drop passes. Uh, guys miss blocks and tackles. That's, 
that's a physical part of the game that's going to happen no matter what, and uh, nobody wants it. Nobody drops him on purpose. He said, what concerns me is, uh, you know, is the player getting open. And, and you're right, Scotty Miller was getting open, and therefore he did go back to him, and, um, and, and it proved to be, uh, you know, obviously important. And then, you know, I mean, the, tight, the tight end has not been a, much of an option for the Buccaneers in their offense. They're trying as hard as they can to get some of these young kids involved, Coke Keefs and uh, Kate Otten, and, and, and it really worked out to their advantage this time around. Um, you know, that's a play that I, I don't know that uh, Gronkowski gets as open as Kate Otten did in this play because obviously people are looking at him. But uh, a perfect executed play by the, by the tight end, Kate Otten. You know, he, he gets the quick block, little chip block, and then, you know, uh, you know comes off of the, the block and, and he's wide open there. So uh, an easy play and a, a good smart call by, uh, by the Buccaneers and, and good for them. Roger, I don't know how much of the Bucks game you had a chance to see because it was spread all over the TV, uh, all the games in, in different areas here in Atlanta. Uh, so you don't necessarily have to go to the Bucks. Uh, maybe you want to go to another game. No, no. Well, I'll talk about the Falcons in a minute. But uh, I wanted to stay with the Bucks. And, uh, you know, Roy, if, if anybody should know the, the tendencies of uh, Tom Brady, uh, I would think it would be Raheem Morris. I mean, I mean, he was there, uh, I guess, before uh, uh, Brady came. But, I mean, he knows. He's been around a long time, been an interim uh, head coach. I think he was also with the Falcons uh, a number of years ago, as I recall, uh, as the interim. And, uh, he, you know, he's an experienced guy. But I think it, it goes back, and I've heard this comment made um, not only by the Rams and about the Bucks. It's all about discipline and focus or lack of. And uh, it seems like it, it's also like on the game on Sunday, uh, the Falcons uh, could have had that game won and, uh, and, and, you know, went to OT and they lost. And uh, yeah. I, it just goes back, I think, to focus. And I know Matthew Stafford in that game, because I saw some highlights and I was listening to it on, uh, Sirius XM in the car that uh, he really evidently has a lot of issues this year uh, about uh, some of the plays and, and of course it could be Sean McVay but uh, anyway uh, yeah yeah Matthew Stafford is not having a good year let's put it that way no he's not and and that was evident as well and you know I think look I, I can't speak to much to the to the to the Rams situation that may be a problem with, with play calling and maybe, you know, that he and the head coach are not on the same page um, in terms of what they want to run there. And that's not a good situation, but I can tell you with the Bucks, one of the reasons that I think, you know, you could suggest that uh, this will say, and again, we'll see what happens here come Sunday. Uh, but you could make the, a strong suggestion that, you know, this little blip on the radar screen, they, you know, they go 48 yards or they go 60 some yards here and get a touchdown 48 seconds left. That's great. But, there's some other problems inherent uh, with the team right now that, uh, that that suggest that you know this could be a this is, what we've seen of the Bucks is going to continue going forward. And part of that, the first part of that problem is, you know, you don't hear a whole lot about Tom Brady not being protected well, but that's because he's not, you know, he, he's he, and he is he's not taking a lot of sacks, which is good. But that's because he's getting the ball out quickly out of necessity. You know he's he's not he doesn't have a lot of time to go through his progressions. A lot of the 
four passes and missed passes and, and pass breakups that occurred in the game last Sunday were a result of the fact that, you know, Brady doesn't have time to go through his progressions. He goes back there, and instead of, you know, being able to look at one, two, three, even four, you know, scan the field, um, he, he doesn't have time to do it. So he's got to throw the ball to the first or second progression and just accept the fact that, hey, you know, this may not work. And uh, because of his accuracy, you know, he still puts the ball in a position where his guy, you know, his player has got the best chance to get it. But at the end of the day, it may not be, you know, a player who's actually open enough to, to make the reception. And uh, it's a pass that uh, is almost a 50-50 ball, even though it's not, you know, thrown up high. And, and, and I think that that's been lost on a lot of people. So you've got a problem. You can't run the ball. So that affects your play-action passing. They're trying to do – they tried to, you know, run it more uh, effectively and certainly uh, be a little bit more diligent about running it this past week. Um, but at the same time, if Brady doesn't have time to go through the progressions and pick out the best, most available receiver, uh, they're going to continue to struggle to move the ball down the field. And that, that's what happened against the Rams. So we'll see if it continues in, in Seattle. Good chance it will. Um, it's just a, you know, it's a tough deal, man. I mean, uh, they are just having all kinds of uh, tr- trouble. And I think it really starts up front with the offensive line. And I'll give the uh... – broadcast team a little bit of credit for this game too because as they pointed out many many times during the course of the ball game a running play now for the bucks is brady taking one step back throwing a quick pass right down the line to fournette and hoping that he can run that's that's the that's the running game you're you're right that that is kind of the running game it's it's screen passes and uh you know bubble screens and things like that and uh it's because again the offensive line just isn't very strong. And one thing that has not happened, and it's hard to give them any credit uh, because they're not they're not producing, but, you know, it doesn't look so bad except, you know, for the fact that they just can't run the ball. But the line just, it's not opening up holes, and it's not, you know, really giving Brady enough time to, to really uh, make a difference uh, in terms of, you know, his skill set. So, until the line gets better and, you know, there's some hope that Ryan Jensen comes back. Uh, but until the line gets better, I don't see this offense getting better. It's, it's, it's really on the line to create more openings for the running backs and, uh, and allow for the running game to work. And then to give Tom Brady time to go through his progressions until, until that happens, uh, they're going to continue to struggle to score points. Roger. Well, you know, a couple of things that surprised me at the NFL, uh, was the uh, the Colts uh, not that they, that was unexpected? I mean, Frank Reich, I just think the world of, but uh, letting him go. But how about uh, Jeff Satterley, who was a uh, an All Pro center, as we all know, um, with uh, Peyton Manning all those years. Uh, he was like a, a consultant to the Colts, and now he's the interim head coach. Uh, I, I don't think he's had any coaching experience, but. It just brings back uh, uh, Don and Frank. They, I remember when the uh, Pope, Paul Owens, went down to manage and on the uh, field to get a feel for what was going on, you know, and uh, and he was the, the general manager of the Phillies. And I guess maybe that's what uh, Jim Irsay is looking at, that get a, uh, an ex-All-Pro uh, to down there to see exactly what's going on, whether they have to rebuild. 
That, that's number one. I haven't heard the, the, any uh, m- more information on Josh Allen, whether he may be out for uh, surgery. And what I had heard that after he got uh, hit and got hurt with his uh, uh, hand and his arm, uh, that he, if he had to have uh, Tommy John surgery, he'd be gone, obviously, for like a year. So had you heard anything about that, fellas? <laughs> Well, let's jump not. first. I have not. I'll quickly answer and say I have not heard an update on that. Yeah, I, I don't think that they have an, an announced anything concrete. I think they're still trying to figure out what uh, what they've got there and where where they are with Josh Allen. Um, obviously, uh, he's not going to play this week, I don't think. But um, it's it's looking like surgery may be the may be the only option, which is just it's just devastating. Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. No question about and, that. I mean, it, you know, he's the heart and soul of the club, and uh, as quarterbacks are all all through the league, and everybody that loses one drops down two or three pegs right off the bat, and it's not going to change in Buffalo. But uh, Roy, we only have you for a, for a half hour. I don't want to touch on a couple of other things quickly. Uh, we're going to do the Phillies the next half hour, but I certainly like to get your observation uh, on the six games played uh, between the Phillies and the Astros, and what you thought. Yeah, it was. Uh, I'll tell you what. It, it was. I thought it was a really good series, um, just loaded with uh, with intrigue and and uh, you know, obviously, look, the Phillies played very very well. I mean, I, I, again, I, we talked about the fact that I think they played, you know, a little bit uh, above themselves uh, throughout the course of the playoffs, and good for them. You know what? Teams get hot, and they got hot. But at the end of the day, they uh, they were up against some really really good pitching. In, uh, in Houston, and you got into a situation where, you know, they were leaning so much on the home run that when it didn't come, uh, you know, they were really kind of up against it. And, uh, you know, and there you are. And uh, it just you could just sense it in game, game six, guys, that uh, when uh, Jordan Alvarez hit that home run, you know, it just completely changed the momentum. It just completely changed it. And uh, it was kind of almost like the, the Phillies were kind of just hanging on at that point, you know, hoping if they could somehow, you know, scrap together maybe another run in the last inning or two, uh, they might be able to pull this thing out. But then Jordan Alvarez just – he took the wind out of their sail. There's no doubt about it. I mean, he just uh, – it was a gut punch. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, I'm I'm, I'm very happy for Dusty Baker. Uh, I was, you know, obviously rooting for the Phillies. But how can you not be happy? For Dusty Baker, uh, you know, 53 years in baseball, um, just really one of the one of the gems of the game. A great guy, and uh, a manager who uh, who's, who certainly paid his dues and uh, and earned his stripes, and he and he's earned a ring, and, and good for him. Look, he took over a really tough situation in in uh, in Houston, and I thought it was interesting that you know during the broadcast, it was mentioned that you know some of the players in Houston re- realize they know they're never going to be liked. Uh, by most of the by most baseball fans or the majority of you know traditionalists or whatever, uh, but they they feel if they continue to win they're going to have to be respected and I guess you know what you do have to say that about them, you do have to respect them. You may not like them, I don't. I'm not a fan. Um, still can't uh, forgive some of the players for what they've done, uh, what they did, but uh, at the end of the day, um, it, you can't help but respect them. And boy, what a great call. Uh, by their management to to go and get Dusty Baker. He was just the, the perfect guy. And let's not forget, they had the best record throughout the course of the season. So uh, 
no surprise that they win the World Series. But boy, what a, what a great what a great great season for the Phillies. Unexpected that way, and uh, really special. Well, my quick comment before I go to Roger is that uh, I, I really believe the best team won. Uh, they play exceptionally well, as you said. Great pitching. We'll talk more about the next half hour. But Roger, you're up. Well, yeah, I agree. Uh, I'm happy for Dusty Baker. He finally got the uh, championship after all those years, uh, not only being a pretty well, great, great player and uh, a very, very good manager uh, over many years with many teams and uh, well-deserved. And I think you hit the nail on the head, Roy. A calming influence uh, like but Dusty Baker is exactly what was needed uh, at, uh, at, with the Astros. And I know I took surveys of all the, the uh, students uh, at uh, middle school where I sub a lot, and uh, the consensus was uh, that uh, they were more for the Phillies, even though they're Braves fans, because they said they don't like cheaters. So <laughs> that's from middle school kids. Exactly. Well, that's, that's, you know, that's what I was referring to when uh, – you know, I mentioned that the players realize that they are not going to be liked by uh, the majority of fans, but they're hoping that they, if they win enough, they'll be uh, they'll be respected. And you know, speaking of respect, you got to give tons of respect to the to the Phillies. Um, you know, look, it, it, it was just, again, it was a great season, and I think they have figured out a lot of things. I mean, I think they moved, you know, two years ahead of where they were at the beginning of the season. Uh, in terms of figuring out what it is that they need in order to, to, to you know, maintain themselves as contenders uh, going forward. I don't think there's any question now that they know exactly what needs to be tweaked, what needs to be added. If anything needs to be subtracted, they know what that is. Um, they know that their their style of baseball can win. Um, I'm sure they want to get a little bit better defensively. That I think that's a must. But uh, at the end of the day, I think they realize they're on the right track. And uh, it's a good track in a division that, you know, has got a couple of weak, weak links, but still arguably the strongest division in baseball when you got the Braves and the Mets. And we'll see what the Mets do with, you know, in free agency and whether they can hold on to guys like Jacob DeGrom. But, boy, this is a situation where you start thinking if you're the Phillies, you know, can we steal another player or two from the division? Can we take a Jacob DeGrom away from uh, the Mets, you know, just like they did with Bryce Harper in the, in, in the Nationals? So, uh, it's going to be interesting. Um, I think they're going. To, I think it's going to be the pedal to the metal for these guys, and uh, and then they're going to they're going to push this thing and see. You know, they they want to get back there, and I think anything less than getting back to the World Series next year, even though it seems a little bit aggressive, probably going to be a disappointment for these guys. They they feel like they belong, and I think they do. Roy, well, that first half hour always goes by so quickly. Yeah. I appreciate very very much uh, your time as always. Uh, Rich Westcott is standing by right now, one of the finer Philly writers. Uh, some surprises in this next half hour with Rich. And uh, thank you so much, Roy. We'll get together again next week and do it all over again. My Have pleasure. a great week, guys. Roy. Thanks, guys. Have a great week. Take, Take care. care now. All right, we were holding off the Phillies primarily because Rich was going to be in with his next 27 books. Six of those books have been about the Philadelphia Phillies and the heritage of the franchise. I know he's got a lot of family listening uh, down here in the Sarasota area. He's in Philadelphia or outside of Philadelphia. And uh, talked to Rich last week when I picked up the uh, Herald Tribune here in, in Sarasota when I got down here. And the headline said, 
Guthrie living the dream on Philly's roster. And I said, Guthrie living the dream. And I look at it and I say, Rich Westcott wrote this story. He's from Philadelphia. <laughs> What's he doing on newspaper? So anyway, to make a long story short, Hall of Fame writer and uh, one of the great guys, and Roger knows him well. I know him well. We've been a part of the Philadelphia Sports Writers Association, and I know that Larry Litwin is listening in tonight as well as uh, Rich's family. So, Rich, first of all, welcome to our program. First time you've joined us. And secondly, uh, what got you involved in this particular story? Well, uh, you know, I learned that Guthrie was from Sarasota, and as it turned out, um, my uh, granddaughter's husband played with his brother in Sarasota, and uh, he also knew his father uh, because he coached the team that he played on. So we got talking about Guthrie and his his roots in Sarasota, and and uh, subsequently I talked to Guthrie here in Philly before a game one night, and uh, we got talking about uh, different things and his uh, in his his joy about being with the Phillies and so forth. So. You know, uh, ultimately it occurred to me, hey, this this might be a story for the Sarasota paper. And uh, that's the way it turned out. And uh, I'm, I'm very pleased that the Sarasota uh, uh, Herald used the story. And, uh, gee, they, they gave it great coverage, a lead story on one of their uh, sports editions. And, you know, they, they also played it up big in their, uh, on their website. I, I think they used about six pictures with the story there. So it all turned out really well, and, and I, I think Dalton liked the story, and uh, he was he was happy about it. So, you know, it was it was uh, uh, it turned out really good, and I was I was quite happy to do it. And you know, as you say, I have family in Sarasota, and and uh, you know they they enjoyed seeing my byline. <laughs> what Roger? We've been with Rich a long time in the Philadelphia sports writers. And I said, what a shock! What I opened up the paper and saw that. <laughs> Roger, you're up. <laughs> well, you called me and t- telling me about the article. My only question, Rich, is I hope you were uh, monetarily rewarded for the, <laughs> for the story. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> That's part of the business, you know. I know. An important part of it. But, uh, no, that, it's, it's great when Don told me about it. And, uh, you know, and I've, I've read several of your books. I've got them in my library here. And, uh, you and I were talking about uh, the changes in the uh, Phillies communications uh, department uh, going into this uh, season and and everything. And uh, who would have thought back in June uh, when they got, uh, made the change in managers uh, that the uh, Phillies would have been in the World Series? Okay. It, it just, you know, it was mind-boggling. Well, it was, and, and nobody expected the, even them to be in the playoffs much less the World right. Series, and uh, each playoff uh, series that they won was a surprise to most people, and uh, my heavens, when they finally got to the World Series, who would have thought that? I mean, you know, and, and even early September, uh, they were stumbling along, and, and they were going back and forth, and, uh, you know, who who expected this? I mean, you know, it, it came as a big surprise to a lot of people, and... Uh, uh, it 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 really was a nice feeling because uh, if you go back to the World Series uh, at at the ballpark here, I mean they they more than sold out every game, and uh, you know the, the tickets price was off the charts, but uh, uh, people came and they they loved the Phillies here. 
Well, yeah, you've read that six books on the Phillies alone, and uh, but I think my memory is correct. I think you've written what twenty-seven books now, all told. So you're you're, you're making your you're making your mark in the book department as well. But uh, Ray Dinninger said, of course, Hall of Famer and broadcaster, and we had him on with us two weeks ago. And Ray said the one thing I wouldn't have done this year is retired if I knew the Eagles were going to be undefeated, the Phillies were going to go to the World <laughs> Series. The Lightning were, or the uh, Flyers were going to be coming. The soccer team all of a sudden out of nowhere, even though they lost to New York. We'll talk about that later on in another show. But Phil, uh, you turned the corner like the 70s. He said, I never would have retired. Well, yeah, he's right. This has been a great year. Uh, it's sort of re- reminiscent of the year back in 81 when uh, Philadelphia had a big run with its teams, and that's the year the Phillies won their first World Series. Um, and and that was a great year for all the teams here too. So you know this this is, has been really good. Uh, you know you go back 140 years and the Phillies have only won uh, eight pennants. <clears throat> so this was a, a, a very uh, appealing year for a lot of people. Roger. Hey Rich, I wanted to ask you. Uh, you know a lot of controversy uh, on sports radio on Monday about uh, Rob Thompson uh, taking, uh, uh, you know, the pitcher uh, out, Zach Wheeler out uh, when he did at 70 pitches. I question it watching the game. Um, you know, you have seen a lot of baseball. What was your opinion of that? Uh, and then I do uh, – I think that Alvarado coming in uh, was a mistake because he had not done so well in the previous couple of outings. Uh, but what's your opinion of uh, that that move by well, Rob Thompson? I think it was one of many terrible moves that Thompson made over the season. And now that uh, this has happened, I put Alvarado in the class of Mitch Williams. I mean, they mm-hmm. both gave away the World Series. And, yeah. uh, you know, this has happened uh, throughout the, su- the summer with Thompson yanking a pitcher you know, he's thrown a three-hit shutout in the seventh inning, but, oh, my, he's thrown 80 pitches. we got to get him out of there. Well, that's right. a bunch of baloney. I mean, I, I once interviewed Warren Spahn, and I've told this story many times. And Warren Spahn, we were talking, and he said, we got talking about pitch counts, and he said, you know, uh, they got they went back, some of these analytics people went back, and they counted up the pitches I'd thrown in a game. And he said, typically I would throw 200 pitches in a game, and sometimes I even threw 250. And he said, you know what? I never had a sore arm in 23 years of, of professional pitching. So what's that tell you? I mean, this this whole thing these days about guys, you know, having to, uh, they throw 80, 90 pitches, they got to come out. Well, Hey, how about Robin Roberts? He pitched 28 straight games in a row, 20 yeah. complete games. It's 28 straight complete games in a row. You know, I mean, I think he's still, how many pitches uh, did he throw? Mistaken. He still has the record for throwing the most pitches in one game. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, I mean, you want to go back uh, beyond that or farther back. You know, you had in the 20s a, a 26 inning game in which each pitcher pitched the whole distance for, for each team. Now, how many pitches did they, did they throw? 400, 500? You know, I mean, and they kept going. They didn't, that didn't throw them out of the game. So, you know, I, I think this whole thing of yanking pitchers and, and Thompson did it repeatedly. And then, you know, I mean, you, you see what a pitcher's doing. He's pitching, 
you know, a great game. And you you know what he's up he what his effectiveness is at that point. You don't know what a reliever is going to be like that day. He might be off, you know. And uh, you're you're playing roulette with these guys, and and then you bring in a reliever, and hey, maybe he pitches a good good inning, and then they take him out to bring in another reliever. And so well, you know, I'm a great I'm a great believer in managers, and I you know we go back analytics. I'm, I'm very much on on the fence on analytics in a lot of different areas. But uh, you go back to the uh, the game with uh, <clears throat> with Tampa Bay, and uh, they, they went into, Cash went into the seventh inning with giving up just one hit and had to lead the game, and he did exactly the same thing that Thompson did. He pulled them out of the game, and, of course, they lost it. So uh, there are great parallels there between what happened between Tampa Bay and what happened with the Philadelphia Phillies in that one instance. Well, how about Houston? The guy's pitching a no-hitter, and he gets yanked. I mean, wouldn't yeah. you let him go a little bit longer to see see if he could keep pitching a no-hitter? I mean, yeah, no-hitters, that doesn't mean scrap anymore. Uh, just like, hey, what's a shutout? Nobody knows what that is. My heavens, <laughs> in, in, in 1916, Grover Cleveland Alexander threw 16 shutouts for the Phillies in one season. People today, they don't know what a complete game is or a shutout. And I, I, I just saw this the other day. Uh, the leader in, sh- in, sh- in the complete games, I think it was the American League, threw six complete games, which was more than all the other teams combined. Now, <laughs> what's that tell you? I mean, you know, <laughs> come on. Well, I, yeah, and I think about that when you were talking, you know, about Robin Roberts, I think about that 11-inning uh, uh, no-hitter that Harvey Haddock pitched for the Pirates years ago. Yeah. Oh, okay. yeah. Can you? I don't think any any manager would. I guess it was Danny Murtaugh. He wouldn't think about taking him out. Oh no, no, no. And you know, I mean, this wasn't a factor uh, years back. I mean, I I have a friend, Art Mahaffey, who pitched for the Phillies back in the sixties. And Art once told me that he threw both games of a doubleheader in the minors. And he said, "Geez," he said, "I, I must have thrown at least three hundred pitches." You know, I mean, these, these I, I remember Don Newcomb at Shy Park. He pitched a doubleheader for the yeah, Dodgers. Yeah, I was, he, you're right, he did. Yeah, I know he did. I was oh. there. I, I remember. <laughs> well, the other, he, you know, this this is common, and and you know, even relief pitchers they can go more than one inning. I mean, you you go back a ways, and and uh, Jim Constanti pitching the first game in the Phillies World Series in 1950. He was a relief pitcher, but they had no starters to to start that that first game, so they had to start him, and he pitched eight innings. He was a relief pitcher. <laughs> That's because Kirk Simmons was drafted. They wouldn't let him come home and pitch in the World Series. And, right. Uh, uh, yes. There was a re- there was a reason that he was moved in because the pitching staff was almost down to nothing, so Constanti had to take over and be yeah. the initial pitcher. Uh, but let, let's go back to Rob Thompson because you're right. He did make a number of moves. Uh, but a couple of others uh, that you may think of, I, I question very much uh, a double which turned into a triple because of four center fielding uh, for the first hit of the game, and, and uh, uh, he pulls the infield in. i, I got to say that I can't remember, and now my memory's not too good anymore, but I can't remember ever a manager pulling the infield in after the first batter of the game. Oh, yeah. No, I I, I agree. That's... And that's just one of many infield moves he made that uh, 
are questionable. And, and, you know, in addition to that, why would you bat the, the league's leading home run hitter who's only hitting like 215, 220? Why do you bat him leadoff? I mean, does that make any sense? And then you bat your second highest home run hitter second. When you got some hitters down below who are uh, Segura, for instance, is, is having a good year, uh, couldn't he be first or second? Um, and, and if you look at uh, Schwarber's home run total, okay, so he hit 46 home runs, but a lot of them came with nobody on base. So sure. there's another move that I never quite understood. Roger? Well, you know, do you think, Rich, that uh, that move by pulling Wheeler could have an effect on the uh, clubhouse with Rob Thompson at all? Well, I know Wheeler wasn't too happy. No, I mean, he wasn't. You know, he he. In fact, you could you could see that in his face coming off the off the mound when he when he yanked him, and and he, I, you know, I I was there for each of the games and went to the press interviews afterward. Uh, you know, I, did, I I was in the press box, and uh, I saw all the home games, and and Wheeler was not a happy camper, and and I don't blame him. I mean, you know, he was he was pitching a good game, and and that happened to him during the season too, same kind of thing, and and it happened to Nola. It was, uh, and then I'm not saying Thompson's the only one who did this. A lot of the managers are doing this these days, and. Uh, you know, it all gets back to pitch counts and analytics. And hey, you know, I'm an old timer. I I don't go for that. We stuff. all are. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, Rich, let's go back to the uh, ge- genesis of our interview tonight, and that's uh, you know, uh, Galt Guthrie, and uh, talk a little bit about your conversations in the early days because uh, you've detailed how he was initially drafted. Of course, you talked about a plane uh, down here in Venice, uh, right outside of Sarasota and his dad being a part of it and a big part of it, and also a long-term major leaguer himself. So give a little bit of background of uh, not just Guthrie and how happy he was to get to the major leagues, but that would be a, a great thing for the whole family. Well, yeah, his dad uh, was a relief pitcher in the major leagues for 15 years, and uh, as Dalton said, uh, his dad te- taught him the rudiments of the game, and it, it uh, played, a ma- played a major part in his becoming a big league player. And uh, as I've heard, uh, his brother was a pretty good player, too, although he didn't uh, apparently go into pro ball. But, uh, you know, Dalton had a good career. He said he went to, I have no uh, confirmation of this, but he said he went to Venice High uh, because they had a good baseball program. And uh, so his dad made sure he went down there instead of going to high school in Sarasota. And then he had a very, very... A uh, good career at uh, Florida University. So you know, he 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 and his dad, uh, uh, you know, really put together a pretty good uh, combination. And uh, as I say, his he he gave a lot of credit to his dad for putting him where he was. And uh, you know, uh, he, Dalton is was a very nice guy. Uh, and and I thought the things he said were were right online followed up a little bit uh, from his draft point of view from when when he was drafted uh, to his move into the Philly organization to the fact that he came up at the end of the season he was not on the roster for the uh, for the World Series but uh, a little bit of his background in terms of when he was drafted and how it all 
panned out. Well, he was originally drafted, as you said, uh, by the Minnesota Twins when he was still in college, and he turned that down. He wanted to continue in college, and then the Phillies came along and drafted him, and uh, he was a sixth-round pick, and he went into the uh, minor leagues and played played in the minors for, uh, what would it be, five years, and then, you know, this, this September came up with the Phillies, and the Phillies at that point, their outfield was uh, kind of downhill. Uh, Castellanos uh, wasn't hitting, first of all, and he was hurt, so he wasn't playing at all. And then they had a couple other outfielders who were not not doing too well. So, you know, it was a good move to bring uh, Dalton up from uh, AAA because he was having a real good season uh, with the Lehigh Valley Club. And uh, it turned out to be a good move, although he didn't play that much. Uh, at least he was there if they needed him, and and that's important. Roger, Rich. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about uh, like your most recent uh, books, and uh, exactly uh, tell the listening audience and us uh, uh, what's available now. I, I mean, like Don said, you know, you've written so many books; uh, it's a library within itself. Twenty-seven, but, uh, I believe. Right. Yeah, talk about the the books that the most recent uh, that are available to uh, listeners. Well, the, the most recent one uh, is called Amazing Phillies Feats, uh, which are things that uh, Phillies players did dating back to the, the beginning uh, that were really very special and very very unusual and, and not duplicated for the most part. Uh, in Major League history, I mean, um, 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 one chapter, for instance, was on uh, Robin Roberts, 28 straight complete games. And, uh, you know, they had a, they, they, there were a lot of other things. Uh, you know, Dick Sisler hitting that home run that won the pennant uh, in the last game of the season uh, in 1950. And, you know, on up to the present. Uh, uh, even Rich, let me interrupt you. Sir. How about Richie Ashburn's throw at the plate? Get it, Carl Abrams out. That or wouldn't had Sisler's home run. That was a chapter, uh, too, you know. And uh, I, I, you know, going up to the present, you know, there were a lot of things. Of course, Roy Holiday's two home, two no hitters in one season, including one in the in the playoffs. And uh, you know, Ryan Howard's fifty-eight. Home runs in one season, which true was not the most uh, in baseball history, but it was the most for the Phillies uh, by far. So you know there was a, that, that's the kind of stuff that was in that book, and uh, I, I uh, fortunately uh, was able to interview a lot of these people uh, going back to. Uh, I guess the first one I interviewed was Danny Litwiler, uh, who and for many of his. Uh, years was uh, uh, the the uh, resident of Clearwater, and before that was uh, the head coach at uh, at uh, I guess it was uh, Florida State. And uh, in 1942, he became the first outfielder to play a full season without making an error. This was 150 mm. or more games, and at the time, uh, Danny was alive, and and I was able to interview him. So I had interviews going back that far, and uh, you know it was it was great. And uh, um, of course I did uh, Constanti, uh, who I didn't talk to, but 
he he was the first reliever to win an MVP, and you know I I, I went on and on with things like that, and uh, um, it was it, frankly it was a, a fun book to do because all these great things uh, that the Phillies did, um, you know Mickey Morandini, the first second baseman to have an unassisted triple play during the regular season, and uh, so that, it, that's the kind of stuff that's in there. Um, that's a great the book. The book oh. I did before that was uh, one on a guy uh, whose name was Biz Mackey, who was uh, arguably the greatest all-around catcher in Negro League history and is a member of the Hall of Fame. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, that was... Uh, uh, a little bit tough to do because there weren't that many people around to interview. And, you know, interviewing is one of the major parts of doing a book. And, uh, I mean, I've done books where I've interviewed 60, 80 people per book. Um, so, you know, it's uh, that, w- that was the one before that. And, of course, there were a few others before that. Well, Rich Westcott, thank you so, so very much for being with us. Of course, Roger and I uh, had the great pleasure of knowing Rich for such a long period of time, all being members of the Philadelphia Sports Writers. Rich still lives in the Philadelphia area, and Roger's now in Atlanta. I'm here in Sarasota. But uh, we all get together every now and then and have a chance to chat, talk baseball. And I wanted to talk uh, with Rich a little bit, uh, uh, which we're not going to get a chance to do tonight. But uh, next time we have you on, Rich, uh, the veterans group, the selection of people that they selected to be voted on to go into the Hall of Fame. I got a lot of questions about that, so we'll hold that one for the next show. Okay. <laughs> Sounds good. Well, I, I we've had some good years with the Philadelphia Sports Writers Association, you know, which began in 1904, and uh, we have another banquet coming up in January, and we've had some had some good times. And I know Larry Lippert was uh, listening in tonight. I talked to him this afternoon, and uh, uh, he chatted with me, and uh, he's listening into the show this evening in Philadelphia. But, uh, Rich, thank you so very, very much. Congratulations on the story. Uh, Dalton, I know, uh, got to appreciate what they wrote here in Sarasota. Thanks a lot. Well, thank you, and good talking with you. You too. Hey, Thanks, Rich, Rich, thanks so much. I'll never forget it. The old-timers game years ago, Gene Freeze. Ed Boucher, Bob Bowman, and you and I are on the field before the game, and you said you're going to be shocked because you look at these and think about these players they were when we were kids following them. You were exactly right. <laughs> it was a shock. You know? Well, you mentioned Bob Bowman. He he yeah. was one of two guys who uh, – Frank Wiechek, uh Jr., who was uh, a friend of mine, still is. His dad was a trainer for the Phillies. And we went to spring training one time back then. And since the players, the teams barnstormed home, the players had to have somebody to drive their cars home. And we drove Bob Bowman and Robin Roberts' car home, cars home from Florida. (laughs) (laughs) And we got paid 60 bucks. Just another story, boys. Just another story. Thank you very much. We got to switch gears right now. And uh, we're going to move over to the. The Relia Quest Bowl, every time I have a tough time getting that out, Relia Quest Bowl, the Director of Communications, it's on January the 2nd at uh, Raymond James Stadium. As always, it's not on the first this year, it's on the second because of the calendar. Mike Schulte, Director of Communications, joining us right now. And 
after this weekend of upsets and just wonderful, wonderful college football, uh, you you just you gotta you just have to look at that wall of teams, Mike, and you gotta feel great. <laughs> well, what is it? I, 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 what's our, our saying that I always talk about in our office? Every week something's gonna happen you don't expect, and um, <laughs> in, in some weeks, like this past weekend, there's a lot of things that happen you don't expect. I mean, not only were there quite a few upsets, there were quite a few um, close calls of teams that, you know, ended up playing games a lot closer than they expected. I mean, Ohio State's one of them. You know, Northwestern was right there with them for most of the game, and then they finally pulled away at the end. But um, And there was a couple others like that. So uh, a couple couple teams uh, sort of escaped uh, you know uh, the the uh, potential upset, and then there was a few upsets along the way as well. And but you know what? That's called it's called November in college football. How about <laughs> Kelly? What a decision he made in the overtime to go for the two points, and what a move he's made now. Uh, you know, and and the SEC, uh, be, you know, LSU was really struggling a little bit. He came in, lost that first game, was a close game. But since then, uh, he has been building and building and building, and uh, I, I just didn't think he would move that team that quickly. Uh, Mike, you, you sort of had more confidence than I did at the beginning of the year. Well, you, you can tell that they he's obviously got the buy-in from the players uh, along the way because, they, like you said, they've improved throughout the season, um, and then they're now playing at a very high level. Um, and, and, again, that first game you know, was a heart, heartbreaker for them. Uh, losing um, at the end there with the blocked uh, extra point or whatever field goal, and but it was um, uh, you know and and they struggled a little bit along the way early on, but you know anytime you got a new coach and you obviously you know there's player changes and this and that and everything. I mean that's you can expect that, but boy they they definitely are are on the right track right now. They're hitting on all cylinders, and this is only going to give them more confidence going forward and. And I was happy for him from the standpoint of I think that, you know, the, you know, he's removed, you know, any doubts that uh, folks had when he first came came aboard there, which I, I, you know, you heard people that were sort of questioning him coming there or whatever. But, um, you know, that, that was a, that was a really big win for him, um, you know, from that perspective to sort of silence the, the naysayers a little bit. And so now they can move forward with a, you know, he can move forward with a clean slate and just, continue to, to build the program and, and, um, you know, try and get them back to where they used to be. So, uh, good for him. Um, you know, tough, tough loss, you know, obviously, uh, you know, on the other side, but you know, that that's, that's the game. That's how that's, that's the way it's played. And, and the, all these games are, are tough. And like you said, you get in November and you're playing these, you know, these, these conference games and rivalries and all that. I mean, these things are going to happen. Well, before I get to Roger, let me go to our executive producer, Frank Carroll. If he's uh, listening right now, he's running the controls. But if he's listening, uh, Frank, your Notre Dame team had a giant, giant weekend. <laughs> Not just a win. They had a colossal That's right. win. <laughs> That's right. You you understand? It's, uh, uh, all the things I've said about uh, Tommy Reese being a stupid coach and things like that, I may take back this week. But we'll see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> I, I told I told him Actually, off air. I said I you know when when we first talked tonight. I said I said I remember one of you guys you know bad mouthing Notre Dame 
uh, about a month ago. <laughs> and that's yep. another one, you know, like LSU, right? They've, they, they've come along now. You know, remember, they lost their quarterback, you know, the second game of the season. And they had to bring this other kid, fast track the other kid along, you know, you know pretty quickly. And, and, again, you had a situation where you had a new coach and a new, new you know, new style of play and, and all that. So, you know, again, took took them some took them a little while to get their feet under them, but uh, you know they're you know they're showing you know, right now they're playing their best ball and and uh, you know who knows I mean you know a few weeks ago people would have said hey they're playing they got to play Clemson they got to play USC still good golly what's going to happen and and that they just took care of Clemson and now you know they're in position to you know obviously after after playing Navy and that that they could uh, you know they you know maybe they can beat USC so. It's, you know, finished really strong. So, um, again, you know, a team that's really come along and made a lot of strides this year. And, uh, you know, that, that's great to see. Roger, you and so Jordan are up. With that, one one thing ahead, with Notre Greg. Dame, though, yeah, the one, one thing with Notre Dame is that the defense has really taken hold of the, the game. When have you ever seen uh, three uh, block punts and uh, scoring on two of them in any game um, in, in history, I, I, I don't think I've seen it, but they have a kid. Uh, Etamani is, is a great running back. They got a kid in the uh, uh, the uh, linebacker that just blitzes the the hell out of the uh, the kicker, scares the kickers before you can get, get the ball out and take the ball away from them. Uh, I think it's, I think we're in to see a, a total uh, revamping of the team. Um, it has, is it, and I don't think, personally, I don't think it's uh, them getting any um, more feeling, uh, better feeling from the coach or better coaching from the coaching staff. I think it's the fact that they are coming together themselves, fixing the plan. Uh, you're right, Mike, they did lose the, the, the best quarterback they had, and they had to take a kid uh, fresh, fresh off, the, uh, off the campus to do it, um, and he was scared. You could see every game he was scared. It, he was that, um, that first that first game he played. He was bobbling the snap mm-hmm. the snacks the snaps in the shotgun. He was when the ball was coming back. He yeah. he couldn't even catch the ball cleanly the first few few snaps. Right. But you could tell he was nervous. But he's oh well, I tell you what yeah. he's playing a whole lot better now. Yes he is. Yes he is. Hi Roger. I'm sorry. Roger. Yeah I, I just want to get back to uh, Brian Kelly in that game. Uh, I it was I mean it was great. Uh, just a terrific uh, experience even just to watch it. And I thought what impressed me was that Brian Kelly uh, at, at the uh, end of the game when the interview with, I guess, Holly Rowe uh, was saying that uh, it, it was he gave credit. It wasn't Holly because that was with ESPN. But he gave credit to the players and about the way the supporters, the administration has welcomed him into the LSU family. And that really impressed me because, you know, some coaches uh, wouldn't uh, really go that way, that take that uh, uh, road, but he did. And I, I was really impressed with that. Yeah, I, I, I agree because I agree with that, by the way, because like I said, you know, we all know that early on when they was first announced as the coach, there were a lot of, uh, LSU fans didn't seem to think that was a good choice, and and uh, and for whatever reason, I don't. I'm not saying they they were right. I'm just saying that they. 
I remember that there were a lot of naysayers there questioning whether or not he was the right one and all this kind of stuff. And so I, you're right. I think that's a nice that he said that because, you know, he, you know, he could come, he could come, you know, some people could come out and say, you know, some coaches could come out and say, well, you know, this, you know, <laughs> it's like I told you so or whatever, you know, uh, and, right. and not, you know, not even acknowledge that, but, you know, he's all he's talked about all the way along is how much support he's gotten and, and all that and how welcomed he's been, even when he really maybe hasn't always been as welcomed. But he he's taken the high road and really uh, stressed that aspect because, you know, that's the right thing to do. You know, well, he's told the not, guess. Of course, not, 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 not be labor on the, the stuff. Mike, it, it's January 2nd this year, not January 1st because of the calendar. Raymond James Stadium, uh, I always give you a chance to uh, talk a little about uh, ticket situations. Uh, I know you have yeah. a number of different plans, a number of activities. So before we go to our next uh, college uh, review of an uh, of a upset over the weekend, how about a little bit about the Reliance Bowl? Yeah, Reliance Quest Bowl is – we're going to train you up here on that. Reliance Quest <laughs> Bowl, uh, yeah, January 2nd in Tampa – uh, we're very excited. Uh, we uh, um, the, our tickets are going on sale at Ticketmaster on November 21st, uh, so about two weeks, and um, we're uh, we're very excited about uh, the potential teams we get that we can get this year. I'll tell you what we, you know, we have the SEC and the Big Ten. Um, there is a scenario where we might uh, end up having the ability to take a, a an ACC team or, or you know Notre Dame or somebody like that as a part of the ACC uh, or North Carolina or, or what have you, so, you know, a team if, if they're available. So we, we uh, you know, we've got a lot of really strong uh, contending teams out there that, that could be available to us to put together in a, in a great matchup uh, on January 2nd in Raymond James Stadium. So we're, we're uh, excited to be coming down the stretch here at the end of the season and, can't wait to, to see, you know, what teams are available and what kind of matchup we can put together. Rely Quest, that's the name of the bowl when it comes on the second. And, Roger, you're up. Roger? We'll talk about the Georgia Bulldogs. And, Mike, <laughs> uh, I'll tell you what, the, uh, if there was uh, any statement made, it was by uh, uh, Kirby, Smart, and the Bulldogs against those volunteers of Tennessee. Yeah. Well, you know what happened about five days before that? The CFP came out and took and put said, Georgia, you're number three. You're not number one. Right. Like, like the other polls had them, right? And they came yeah. out and they said, no, Tennessee's number one, and you're not even number two. You're number three. <laughs> and I got And when I saw that, as, as, as we say, as the old guys say, right, that's bulletin board material right there. Right. <laughs> and, and I don't know if that had anything to do with it, but they came out, like you said, and they said, uh-uh, no, sir. You know, we're number one. And they came out and showed it. I mean, it, it, it was, it, you're right, it was a heck of a performance. Um, and, uh, I mean, talk about the right time to have everything hit um, on the on the right cylinders, man. I'll tell you what, um, what what a, what a, what a game they played. I mean that that was impressive. And I and I had been to the Florida Georgia game, um, I think two weeks before that. Yeah, right. They, they had 
and and uh, and you know they won that game fairly handily. But they also there were times even in that game, even though they took a big early lead, you know the third quarter they let Georgia, uh, Florida right back in the game, and they've had a couple of those kinds of things during the season, you know where you know they they weren't they weren't consistently playing you know really strong the you know the you know for the, the entire game and um but boy that that game last week you're right i mean gosh from the start to the finish um there was just no doubt that they 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 came to win that game but 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 i just thought it was sort of uh, funny because from the standpoint of you know they the cfb decided they come out with their poll this season and decided that they were going to move them from one to three, which I was sort of surprised because you know the Tennessee and, Florida and Georgia were going to play this come that weekend. You know, weekend come up anyway. So and, like, why, why don't you turn one and two and let them play it yeah. out? You know, but yeah. instead they they're like, oh no, Georgia, yeah, no, no, they're probably like number three, and then they came out and they said, no, no, we're number one, <laughs> and they're back there now. <laughs> Roger. Well, you know, I, I guess, uh, you know, Alabama is uh, pretty much out of the uh, – doesn't have a possibility now right into the playoffs. Am I right about that? Now, what if they won the South the SEC title? Would that put them back yeah. in, in that in play, do you think, Mike? Well, you know, I, you know what's really interesting. I mean, it's not only that loss, but like Clemson losing, right? Um, and then, yeah. so, so, so now, not to say that they're out, but I mean, just the, you know, right now they're out of the top four, right? So, you know, right now you've got four teams that are undefeated. Two of them have to play each other, so you know they're, they're, there's not going to be more than three. Um, and but you know, there, there's just it's it's really up in the air right now as to what's going on with the the four teams in the playoff right now. Now, you can speculate that Georgia wins out in regular season, but then they're going to have to play, like you said, either in Alabama or in LSU in the conference championship game. So, right. you know, what happens there if an LSU with two losses beats beats Georgia in the final game? Or, or what happens if, uh, if, if uh, LSU loses in their game or something and Alabama you know, ends up winning the, the West division and then they get in there and they, you know, they beat Georgia? I mean, there's a lot of different scenarios that can play out here. And, you know, and in which case you're going to have a situation where you might have a, a two loss team, um, you know, going, to, you know, the decision of putting a two loss team in the playoffs ahead of a one loss team. Um, um, and so it, it, there's a lot of things that can happen here. And the other thing too, you know, you've got Oregon and TCU, you know, I mean, what happens if they both went out and, you know, you got Oregon sitting there at 12 and one, who, um, who? By the way, they still get to play like I think USC and and I think um, uh, I think Utah or somebody like that. But they, but you know, and I mean they're they're playing great, and their only losses to Georgia in the first week of the season. Now it was a big loss, right. but it was also yeah. the first game of the season. Yeah, the new new right. quarterback, new coach, you know that kind of thing. So you know, I mean, so you, you're going to have a lot of potentially. You're going to have a number of teams knocking on the door for that, that, you know, that, that 14 playoff. And well, Mike, Roger, make, let's really go back for a second. Really because hard, hard decisions on it. I, right. I really don't think that the final score was indicative of the game. I mean, I thought that Georgia was far superior than the score indicated uh, that they not only proved that they were number one, but they proved it so emphatically. Uh, I mean, uh, when you look at the next day, you look at the paper and say, well, 
they didn't lose that badly. Well, that wasn't the game. Uh, was, there was no game. They just took it over from start to finish. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like I said, I mean, they, they, they went out and showed that they were number one for sure. Absolutely. But, you know, but again, see, there's another thing. Tennessee, you know, Tennessee, if they end up with only, only Georgia as their only loss, and you're looking at them versus a couple of the other teams. I mean, it, right. like you said, it, it's going to be really – I think it's really going to be really hard this year um, for them to come up with the top four teams. I'm not saying – let's just say, for instance, let's just say if Georgia were to win out and win the SEC, okay, everybody concedes, okay, they're number one, right? Um, and maybe the winner of the michigan George Ohio State game has got to be up there, right? But those other right. two spots, even in that scenario – I mean, you could have a you could have a, a eleven and one um, Tennessee whose only losses to number one Georgia. You could have a a twelve and uh, a, a, a twelve and one Oregon whose only loss is to number one Georgia. You could have you know I mean there, there's a in, you know you could have a TCU that's undefeated. I mean you know all and and a and a, the loser of the Ohio State Michigan game if it's say if it's a really close game. Who's only losses to number two, whatever, whoever, you know, the, the other guy. Right. I mean, right. that's you got. You could have a logjam of teams with claims to that third and fourth spot in the playoff uh, that that are getting on the outside looking in. So it, it it's shaping up to be a really interesting uh, final final uh, month of, of college football. That's for sure. Roger. And and also what it does is it just opens up that door. Uh, to expand the number of teams in the playoffs that uh, mm-hmm. are going to happen next year, right? Not next year. It'll be at least two years and potentially uh, it's there two, right. three or four years from now. But yeah, 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 yeah. But yeah, they are going to they are going to expand and they're going to go to twelve teams and you know and that is what it is. I mean, you know, they, I don't think you know I don't know if they need twelve teams to determine. Determine that. I, I think the current system is awful good in regards. To, I, I don't think that any there's been a year during the fourteen playoff that they haven't had the best team in the playoffs. So I, from that perspective, I don't think that's you know that's really the, the reason why they're expanding. I think they're expanding because you know that there's so much more TV money that they can get that way and everybody money, can share money, money, that's, money, that's, money, that's, money, that's, money. That's Follow the money. I'll tell you, if we see many more commercials on these games, holy smokes, somebody put the paper on the other side, 12 commercials while they were changing pictures. I mean, it's unbelievable. You can't, wa- you can't watch it. I mean, it's one after another after another. I mean, I realize they're paying a lot of money, but holy smokes, you can't, you can't follow the game the way they have all these commercials in there. But going back to the, uh, uh, what you were talking about, the top four teams that they're using right now, I, I, I've always agreed with the best team should have the opportunity to win and lose. You go to 12, you know something's going to happen. It's one of the better teams is going to get upset. And, uh, you know, it's all money. It doesn't really make any difference. Let's say Ohio State, Michigan, and Georgia or whatever, if there was an eight-team playoff and they lost the one game, it'd be out of it. Uh, and yet they're the better team. But you can't do it. You take the money, that's what it's going to be. Yeah. Well, and you know, the other thing though too, I mean, some of these teams are never going to have a, a real chance at, at winning the playoff. They're just going to be, you know, they're going to get to say they're in the playoff. But it is what it is, you know. Uh, I, I, one one good thing about the hey, one good thing about the commercials though, I gotta say, right? 
we're past the election, so now we don't have to look at the political oh, commercials anymore. Oh, thank God. <laughs> oh, oh, my absolutely. God. Oh, unbelievable. Roger. You know, uh, you know, Mike, you had a good point uh, about that, about Georgia on their schedule, because where they did have some issues was with the lower uh, conference, so to speak, teams, if you know, you know what I mean. You know the uh, sure. non not as non competitive not as competitive, and they did have a lot of trouble with a couple of those teams. You're right on about that. They they squeaked by one game. I think it was Missouri. They they had to come from behind them to beat Missouri. Right. And and also uh, the the um, I forget which one it was, but it wasn't a a major conference uh, team, and they did have some trouble with them at least early on and, you know, into the third period, uh, it was a, it was a squeaker for a while. But, you know, they when they needed to come to the uh, – the, the cream needed to come to the top, they they really rose to the top on Saturday. There was no doubt about it. And, right. You know, I, I have the utmost respect for Kirby Smart as a coach. I mean, he, there's a guy, he really is involved in all aspects of that game. It's amazing the way yeah. you see him on the sidelines. Yeah, he he is, and and you know I I I, I, I do got to go back. You we talked about Alabama and stuff. You know, you know, of course Kirby, uh, you know, worked under under Nick uh, Saban and and all that. And you know what 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 seems to me just personally what he's been able to do that a lot of the other um, assistant former assistant coaches under under Nick Saban. Um, who then left to, you know, to uh, head head up their own teams, have not necessarily all been able to do is they he's been able to, I, I wouldn't say replicate Alabama, but if you look at the kind of players they have there and the depth of talent they have there, it's like Alabama has been over the years, right? I mean, you know, yeah. he's been able to to go out and get the get the players and, and, and obviously he does a great job coaching. Um, but you, if you look at the kind of players they have, you know, when Alabama for years and, 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 you know, probably this year too, but even though they're not in their, in their mind, not having as good a year, but you know, they, if you know, year in and year out, right. The Alabama just, they just, you know, they just, the guy goes down, they replace him with another great player, you know, um, switch quarter quarterbacks in the middle of a game and the next quarterback ends up, you know, becoming an all-star, you know, I mean, it's just, you know, they, that's what they've been able to do over the years and, and why they've been so good, consistently good. And Georgia just seems at this point has gotten to that level with regard to their talent that, that that's on the field and, and even on the bench. So um, that's, you know, he's been able to do that and not everybody, you know, uh, you know, you can, you know, learn the system. You can coach under Nick and learn how he does things and all that kind of other stuff and has, is so successful, but then you go to another program and, and maybe, you know, you don't, when you don't have the same talent level <laughs> as you had at Alabama, you know, things start looking a little bit different and, and, uh, but Kirby's been able to over time been able to build his program into something that looks an awful lot like the Alabamas that we're used to watching. And so now he's reaping that, re, you know, those rewards, obviously. And, and, you know, the key is, you know, the other year, that uh, was, uh, programs been able to do that as well. Yeah. And when we talked, when we talked about uh, uh, the portal, 
the portal has really changed college football 100%. Last year, uh, at the end of uh, the, we talked about the, the four defensive backs that uh, Georgia was able to bring in to restack because of the portal. Mm-hmm. And, and we've mm-hmm. talked about it with a number of different teams, but the balancer is that if you are weak at maybe see two, lineb- two linebacker spots or two safety spots or two corner spots, you, the portal fills you right in. So you're right back in the same yeah, competition you- with the same level of talent. Yeah, you're, you're getting guys who are experienced, maybe from other you know, really good Power Five schools, right. um, you know, with experience, as opposed to having to bring in, a, you know, a, a freshman out of high school and try and get him on the field, you know, uh, as quick as possible, you know, but he's still like a rookie or a sophomore or whatever. So, you know, you're right. I mean, that's, I got you. that's been a big, big factor with a lot of these these teams, and. And and certainly, you know, it's you know they've been doing it from college basketball for years, right? And they they they've the JUCO players to come in and yeah. fill a spot that you know that you need because you know basketball, of course, you don't you only need you know five really good players, right? Or maybe four really good ones and a couple role players. But um, so you know, bringing in one really good player, uh, you know, out of junior college or somebody like that, as opposed to bringing up a freshman, um, can improve your team real quickly in college basketball, right? And so, you know, football, you know, obviously takes more as far as numbers like that. But you're right. I mean, it's now a situation where now you can bring a kid in who's a, a junior or maybe even a senior uh, who's played for two or three years um, and is, can come in and step right in to his role. And you know what you're getting because he's played for two or three years. You know, uh, it's not a freshman that you're hoping is, is as good as you thought, um, but it's somebody who's been proven and he steps right in. And fills, like you said, a role where maybe you lost a player to injury or, or graduation or whatever the year before, and you don't have that drop off. And the other thing too Mike, is thank that you very, you know, very much as always another great, uh, another great do, segment. You can attract more players. Absolutely. No, I'm, I'm sorry, I thought you were through. Well, I question is what we're talking about, and of course he's the director of communications, January the second, Raymond James Stadium, and. Uh, not too far down the line, we'll have the teams that will be participating, and uh, Mike will give them to us first off the bat. Mike, thank you very much once again. Another great segment. Take care. Thanks, guys. Have a great week. Thanks, Mike. Mike Zimzak sitting on the sidelines right now, and uh, Mike, boy, i got so many things to talk to you about tonight in the world of soccer. We we talk about so many things with football, basketball, and everything else, but uh, tonight we're going to lead off with that soccer because we've got a couple of things your prognostication uh, on the uh, MLS championship game uh, did not come to fruition, but it was a great game to watch. Roger and I were watching it. We talked about it. There's some things we don't understand about it. So that's why you're here. You picked Philadelphia to win. Philadelphia did not win. They lost 5-2. to two. Uh, But to give us, uh, give us your impression. Um, so it wasn't 5-2. to two. It was uh, uh, – Three three in overtime, right. and I did say that it was going to go to extra time, uh, and uh, then three nothing in the penalty shootout. Uh, hey, look! Until the 128th minute, I was looking real, real good because yeah, uh, the, the the Union were up three uh, two, so I was all set to send a message. Hey, I got the score a little bit wrong. 
But I had the right that's, team. That's what Roger and I don't understand. We want you to explain it. Roger, you, well, you called me, and I said, I don't understand it either. Well, no, I understood that the, the minute because they scored. It was 3-2. The tying goal was with 245 left, right, Mike? Uh, yeah, I mean, it was uh, it was it was in the 128th minute, so I think there was about maybe two two thirty left in injury time when um, LAFC got the winner. Right. But what I did not understand, and Don and I were talking about, is why do they go to, to the uh, to the shootout? And the why not just continue to play and have sudden death? So whoever scores, like in football, why is that? I didn't. I don't understand it. Neither did Don. A lot of people have said that in the past. Um, you're not the first to ask the question as to why soccer has um, decided to go to the. Uh, to, to, to shoot out at the end well, of the game. Well, sudden death should be sudden death, shouldn't it? If you're going to play the game, you, the next team to score should win. There have been – you're not wrong, Don. A lot of – you're not the first person by a long shot to say, hey, uh, let's do this. Go with the idea of the golden goal. If a team scores, the game ends. Right. Or even what they call a silver goal, which is, you know, how they play the two periods of extra time. Um, if one scores, then the other one has until the end of that period to score. You're certainly not the first person to make that suggestion. And a lot of people have felt that uh, that might cause teams to be a little bit more adventurous in extra time, because more often than not, uh, what you see is a game that goes in the added time, uh, to uh, the extra time like that ends up going to a penalty shootout. Very, very rarely does a team score, let alone have a situation where both teams score. It's unusual for that to happen. Right. Uh, one of the big issues with them going like an NFL playing just, we're going to play until somebody scores is the fact that, you know, there aren't unlimited subs like there are in hockey or basketball or any of the other sports where you can rotate people in and out. You know, once a player's out, a player's out. Uh, Even if you said we're going to raise the number of substitutes that you can bring in, you've got guys out there playing on very, very, very tired legs and it just radically increases the room for injury, for serious uh, injury, the longer these guys play. So the idea was, you know, we'd love to, but what we don't want to end up with is like a four-hour game where you're playing five on four because teams have just run out of healthy players and or doing anything that messes with the integrity of the game. I give hockey credit. Uh, with the idea of we're going to play an overtime period where it's four-on-four hockey, you know, I think that's fine. And, you know, if you look at hockey, you can have a four-on-four game with penalties and things like that. That happens. It's it's something that you see in a game. The idea of taking guys off 
uh, one at a time, and soccer just doesn't necessarily work the same way. So coming up with with a way to end the game that we think is fair that actually keeps in line with the integrity of the game. And unfortunately, I've said it on this show before to, to you and to a lot of other people, you know, nobody likes the penalties, but sometimes we think it's just the best bad idea that we have at the moment. One other question, uh, Roger and I were chatting as well, and, and that was that you have a goalkeeper that comes in who hasn't been playing at all. I mean, he's sitting on the sideline. He's on the bench when the injury occurs, and now he comes in. And uh, I can't give you the exact number of minutes, whether, but it wasn't more than, what, two and a half, three minutes to go in regulation time. He comes in, plus the fact he's a former Philadelphia goaltender, and, exactly. which was, I thought was really, I thought really was a – Unbelievable. He not only comes in, and then he goes through the shootout, and he beats his old team. <laughs> uh, yeah. That's one of those that you just can't make up. <laughs> uh, it, it, it's hard being the backup goalkeeper on the Philadelphia Union right now. Andre Blake is probably one of, if not the best, in MLS, uh, I believe personally that if it, he was on a different national team, if he wasn't Jamaican, if he had played the World Cup or something like that, he would have been playing over in Europe a long time ago. Uh, it's the Philadelphia Union's game that he is there and playing, and he's the reason why they have been so successful because, A, they have – Solidity at that position, at that particular spot, and B, his ability as a goalkeeper and a shot stopper in general allows them to be much more aggressive offensively. They can play the defense higher. They can be more attacking because they know at the end of the day they got one of the best in the business back there. That means that the backup goalkeeper for the Philadelphia Union. It's a bit of a lonely spot. You know that you're not really going to get the spotlight unless it's an injury. And you see guys who take a chance, you know, maybe come up and then opportunity, even if it is to get more money as a backup someplace else, like LFAFC, and they take advantage of it. In this case, you're right. You had a former uh, union player who had started some games for him, who ends up in net and uh, comes up with goods. How much of that was him stopping the shots, and how much of that was the shooters not putting the ball where they should have uh, is a matter for debate. I will always argue that a penalty shootout, the advantages to the guys shooting the ball, uh, they're the ones who have the, the ability to put it wherever they want. And if you make the right shot, as wide as that goal is, there's just about no way the keeper can stop it. So I think the union were a little bit. Well, they, they weren't even close. They weren't even close to defending those last three. I mean, that was uh, no. that was a wide open net. I mean, there was no question about that. Let's let's get to something else real quickly because Doug's on the line waiting to go too. Tell me how Argentina can ban six thousand people from coming to the World Cup games. Uh, uh, you explain that to me. That's something I've never heard of before. You know, uh, that's another one. Your guess is as good as mine. Um, I am not sure what the circumstances are with Argentina, uh, and I really don't fully understand the decision to ban 
those fans. Um, I know that there have been a number of issues, especially with fans recently. Uh, there was uh, just last week a game in Argentina, one of their cup finals that ended up in basically a melee in the stands uh, when one of the opposing players scored a goal in front of the opposition fans. And it, it, there was a melee in the stadium. Ten guys got red cards. A bunch of people got fans. Uh, I don't know what the reasoning is, you know, fan violence, threats, travel, um, political things that has caused them to make this decision. But you're correct. They said that the, the, all these fans How in the world go. can you hit 6,000? How in the world can you possibly designate 6,000 people that can't come to the games? I, I don't understand how you can even do that. I, your guess is as good as mine. I, I don't know whether it, whether it's a case of what they had their how they're going. My, your guess is as good as mine as how how they're going to enforce that one, right? Uh, All right, well, we'll let it go that way. Doug's waiting on the line. We're going to get to him in a second. But uh, Mike, always thank you very much for cleaning up the. Uh, MLS force and the overtimes and the sh- and the and the shots and all the rest of it, and especially the goaltender. I thought that was I thought that was really unbelievable. The former Philly goaltender winds up winning the game playing for LA. But thank you very very much. A, a, a great segment. We'll talk to you next week. Yeah, man. Next week um, we're right at the start of the World Cup. World Cup, and you know what? Don and I also need to know what was the capacity of that stadium in L.A. because they kept on uh, saying I, three, four, two, six, or something like that. I, I, no, I think it's around twenty-one thousand. Okay, um, so that's it. No, that's, yeah, it's not. There, none of the soccer stadiums really in the United States are that big. I don't think it's 30,000. I thought it was in the neighborhood of 21 to 24, but uh, it was definitely a sellout house. Yeah. Well, have a great week, Mike. Take care. Thank you. Well, Thank you, you very you much, Mike. One. I'll see you next week. Doug Hamilton, our resident PGA pro, and uh, not much to talk about in the world of golf right at the moment, although uh, Tiger did announce they're going to have another one of those showcase for TV. Uh, coming up in uh, another month or so. But uh, two, two things before we, uh, we talked about the Ravens game the other night, which was uh, pretty much all Ravens. It wasn't much of a game. It was, it was all Ravens. But Doug, uh, in, the, in the papers yesterday and again today, uh, talking about uh, the Washington franchise, Betsos, of course, is going to be the big – Betsos is going to be the big uh, spender. But now – Actor McConaughey's also getting into the picture. He wants to be a part of the new owners. Jay-Z is going to be part of the new ownership of the Washington franchise. Um, and now uh, the big shot from the, the Nets uh, also wants to get into to, uh, be the fourth partner in this operation. Anything uh, new in the Washington area about who else besides these four people are going to take over the franchise in Washington for better than $5 billion? <laughs> Well, it's it's a pretty big deal. Um, as I mentioned, I'm part and parcel to um, you know Washington News. Um, uh, you know, growing up, I was always um, accustomed to watching the Baltimore side of it, so I was more in touch with you know what was happening on on the Baltimore side. But you know, unfortunately, I'm I'm stuck with with news in Washington here uh, where I live, and uh, it, it dominates pretty much every day's. Um, you know, news from the morning all the way through the evening with regard to the Snyder family and, um, 
you know, his, I don't know if you'd say desire to sell the team at this point, but, you know, I think enough's enough probably for him and, and his wife and family. And, you know, they have, you know, forensic accountants that are looking at different things, you know, uh, whether they were shortchanging people based on, on payments for, for, for tickets or, or those sorts of things. They're taking a look at all the, the financial aspects of it. Um, McConaughey, Bezos, all these names that have been mentioned. Um, I, I think it's, you know, in, in different segments that you see people ask random fans, you know, about the, the, the state of the franchise and, and those sorts of things. I think that overwhelmingly people would say that it's time for the Snyder family to get out and for someone else to, you know, see what they can do with this franchise. I mean, obviously the, the concept of a new stadium is still being discussed. Um, you know, you're, you're still kicking around ideas of, of now the nationals, you know, and that, how that's going to play out and, um, you know, where these stadiums are going to be. And, you know, we're talking about, you know, Virginia. I mean, they just knocked down RFK the other day. Um, so, I mean, all, all these different things of, of winds of change that are surrounding, I think it probably gives uh, some of the Washington fan base a little bit of hope moving forward uh, that, that there's a light at the end of the tunnel, that we can get some new ownership in there and um, and turn some things around. Um, you know, the, the, the team itself on field is, is not a really good product. And, um, you know, although their, their defense is, is, is pretty good, their defensive line, I think is, is one of the best in the league. Um, but they're just, you know, they're also playing in a, a difficult division. Um, I don't think anybody would have thought the Giants would be where they are, but you, you know, the Cowboys have played well. And of course you've got the Eagles who are undefeated. So, um, there's a lot going on there for sure. Well, he bought it in 1999 for $800 million, and uh, he's going to sell it for better than $5 million. That's a very nice profit yeah. <laughs> over about 23, 24 years. And uh, everybody wants to Jay-Z, who already runs everything for the Super Bowl, as far as the entertainment is concerned. He's been involved with the, with the National Football League for some time now. As he runs their, their, most of their uh, uh, entertainment activities. Roger, you're up. Well, you know, talking about RFK being demolished, uh, Don and I were there at Eagles uh, Redskins game years ago, and I got removed uh, from my seat in the press box so that Chris Wallace and his son could sit down in the press. <laughs> hey, pal, go to the stands. Yeah. Don will tell you about it. I was right. Rudy Martsky was in there, and he remember him from USA Today. He wasn't happy about us getting removed from our seats either, but. Uh, you know, it, uh, it, it'll be interesting to see whether this group, uh, what they can do with a, uh, a team. I think it's, uh, it, it, I think it's too big of a group, personally. Uh, I, I, uh, I think that uh, there's a lot of egos that are going to be involved in this, mm-hmm. uh, beginning with Jay-Z. Uh, well, they get Devin Durant in there, Roger. <laughs> the NBA has enough trouble. Exactly, and well, with Kevin Durant. Okay, so uh, I remember uh, we were doing the uh, uh, the Labor Day uh, show on down on Ben Franklin Parkway in Philadelphia, uh, picking up these different uh, entertainers, and they these young uh, women were saying uh, everything was smooth until Jay Z showed up. So uh, you know, I'm not a fan. I just not a fan of the guy. I'm not a fan yeah, of some I of these mean, other people either that are on this ownership. You know, Roger, you're you know you make some valid points, and I think that you know at the end of the day, I think Snyder's probably going to get north of 
of almost six million six billion dollars for this franchise and oh sure yeah. you know well look I mean Be- Bezos could probably write a check for that um, but at the end of the day you know you you start talking about um, you know the different people that want to get involved for whatever reasons they want to get involved I mean I think the proof is is in how you slice up that pie with you know who's the majority stakeholder and and um, and how this you know comes to fruition with I mean Bezos probably didn't you know you know when you took when you look at amazon and what he's created i mean you know the the guy's obviously very very intelligent and very talented in how he runs his business or how he had run his business but you know when it comes to football i mean i don't know what he knows but that's why you hire people to do their jobs and you let them do their jobs so i don't know you know how how much you know these guys are going to start meddling in you know the the daily business aspects of, of how to run a football team you know, all the way down to who should we take in the first round? Well, you know, you, you were selling underwear, you know, next next day delivered on Amazon. I mean, what, what do you know about, you know what I mean? So I, I don't know how that works out, but, I mean, you know, money's money. And when you own the team, you know, I mean, I think you're talking more about personnel decisions of who's your coach or strategies to get more butts in the seat and those sorts of things than you are the, the actual, you know, personnel aspect of how, how we're going to win football games. Well, I think if you have well, Bezos as the, as the leading buyer, I mean, he's going to probably be, you know, if it's uh, five billion or six billion or whatever it may be. Uh, I, I know Jay Z's got a lot of money, and, and uh, mm-hmm. no question about that. Uh, so does Kevin Durant have a lot of money? So does McConaughey mm-hmm. have a lot of money? But yeah. I would say they would well, they would have less than a third of what Bezos I, would put in for the uh, for the whole package if you get up around that six billion dollar mark. I'm actually curious. What is the involvement of a guy like Matthew McConaughey? I mean, he's a Texas fan. I mean, he. I don't. What are, what are his ties to the area and or the team, or his desire to even be a part of that? Why? why would I, I don't know. Him? He's a big. He's a big football fan. I'll tell you that. And he travels yeah, with the go. team all over. Every place. Almost every game he goes to, flies in, goes to the game. Mm-hmm. He's on the sidelines all the time. So. Uh, maybe yeah. he has some connection, <clears throat> excuse me, with Washington D.C. and being a part of the that group, or maybe he has some connection with Bezos. I don't know. Right, Roger. Maybe you know more than I do. Well, I think more than anything, he's an entertainer and uh, yeah, that type of uh, guy. And I think he wanted to uh, uh, get involved. And I think it's ego. And you know, the names. Uh, I'm not thinking of it right now. But who was the great? Uh, a singer and had the uh, band that always wanted to be a uh, NFL owner, and he was involved in the uh, Arena League with Ron Jaworski. Uh, and no, the, where bon, he, Jovi. What, you, bon Jovi. Who? Yeah, Bon Jovi. John Bon, John Jovi. bon Jovi. Yeah, now that's yeah. a guy that I could see getting involved, okay, because yeah, he does, he, he, he's been involved no. in football previously. Well, Maybe involved, but not in this deal because I mean that's a he's a Philly guy. I mean, there's no chance he would spread. His no, no, no. I'm just saying yeah, yeah. If, if you're talking about Matthew McConaughey, Doug, sure. Okay, a guy from Texas. I'm just saying I could see uh, the uh, him getting involved in in a, in this group. Not not this group, but it might have been in this group rather than some of these other people. That's my point because yeah. he is well, he man, is well, a guy that's involved. You're missing a point there, Raj. Yes, he is from Texas. Yes, he is involved in different things. But yes, he is also trying to get into politics. What he's trying to do is learn politics to the very bottom 
And I mean, mm-hmm. the, the bottom of the, of the pond, and that's in Washington, uh, getting a hold of Billy Bauer and get a hold of all these other uh, bigwigs to make sure that his candidacy is successful, mm-hmm. not like Herschel Walker's. So that's, if, he's in, if that's what he's trying to do, that's one of the main reasons he's trying to do it. He does not do anything out of the goodness of his heart. <laughs> oh, no, I know. Well, that. let's put that on the side burner and go to the Ravens because uh, yeah. uh, the Ravens played an outstanding game. The game, in my view, and uh, you're the Raven man, Doug, <laughs> I thought it was a terrible game. I mean, I really, I thought it was a very, yeah. very weak, uh, you know, Brady's been saying all along that the league is just the talent just is all messed up. The football is not nearly as good as it was. I think that game is a perfect indication of how bad the league really is. I mean, you know, for, for, for them to get out of New Orleans and play like that and New Orleans to play the way they played, I mean, that was that was just a terrible game. Well, listen, I, I think, first of all, I think your your perspective is a, is a little bit out of whack here because, number one, um, I'm a Ravens fan, and, and, and we got to win. Uh, so to me, that makes a, a fabulous football game. Um, <laughs> on on the back end of that, I, I think there's a, a very large, um, you know, when, when you talk about Roquan Smith and and the Ravens acquiring him at the deadline, I'm going to tell you something right now. That that guy made um, a pronounced difference in the middle of the football field on that Ravens defense. Um, I have not seen them fly around and play that kind of defense for, you know, I, I don't know how many years it's been. Um, you know, he, that guy's a tackling machine. That guy is an instinctive football player. Um, he has immediately changed the culture of this defense in one football game. Um, you know, guys like Justin Houston, fellow, you know, Georgia Dogs, that he had, you know, what, two, three sacks or whatever he had. I mean, you, you have, you know, Patrick Queen actually playing better football. The secondary played great. Now, now we can look at this one of two ways and say that we had Andy Dalton and we had an inept uh, New Orleans Saints uh, defense. But, but I think what, we, what I saw was the Baltimore Ravens go into that uh, facility and, and take, take the soul of, of, of the New Orleans Saints and impose their will upon them. And the Saints offense looked anemic um, for, for a majority of that football game. Um, and so, you know, as a fan, I'm looking at this and I'm saying, hey, man, look, um, you know, we're going to get some, some help here uh, when, you know, the safety Williams comes back and, and you have some of these injuries. You know, you look at Lamar Jackson and, and what he did to carry that football team without Rashad Bateman, without J.K. Dobbins, without Gus Edwards, without Mark Andrews. You know, you had all these injuries and all these different things. Um, you know, that was a pretty stout performance by a team going on the road uh, who should have beat that football team, but but did it, um, and I think made a statement, at least in my eyes, in terms of how they played defense. Oh, I don't disagree with you. I thought they played well, but I, I just thought New Orleans didn't show up. I mean, uh, and Dalton, I mean, let's face it. Uh, you know, they were at the end of the line. Their, their quarterbacks have been knocked out or hurt. He, you know, they kept saying during the course of the broadcast, oh, well, look how well he's done in the last three mm-hmm. games. This is a completely different offense he's been able to set up. He 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 couldn't get rid of the ball. I mean, he couldn't get it out of his. How many times was he sacked in that game? Right. He never changed. He never changed one iota of what he was doing. He never well, took a quick two-step, three-step drop, got rid of the ball. He never did anything. Yeah, again, 
And you well, talk about think, Smith. That's why Smith did so well. Nobody was there yeah. to block him. Well, I mean, look, you, you know, the the New Orleans uh, Saints aren't the same team uh, that 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 we remember that had Drew Brees and and right. Peyton as their. I mean, I, I get I get all that. You know, that that guy Allen is 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 kind of just steering the ship in whatever direction it goes. I mean, when you have Dalton or Winston or Taysom Hill or guys like that uh, to pick from from your quarterback, I mean you're going to run a fairly conservative style of offense. I mean, Alvin Kamara is a very dynamic football player, and they need to find ways to get him the football in space. Um, but here's the thing. You know, each and every week we watch football and we talk about who wins and who loses. But but these coaches are spending countless hours trying to devise schemes and game plans and all these different things. And by and large, in many cases, those games are won or lost before they even play it based on based on the plays that they have drawn up and, and the different types of schemes that they're trying to, you know, invoke to eliminate certain players or, or cause different outcomes to happen. So, you know, again, I, I don't think you can look at this and say that the New Orleans football Saints are, are – I mean, they're not a good football team, but, but I can't – you know, the, the Ravens came there with a better plan and, and executed a better plan and won that game because of that plan they they had. Well, they always do that with Harbaugh. Harbaugh's, Harbaugh's you know? always ready. He's always prepared. He's a, you can't ever say sure. there's a game he comes into. Roger, you're up. Well, well he just hit a 60-year uh, birthday, I, I, I recall. <laughs> he did. Here. Yeah, he did. And, but the, the other thing I heard, and I don't know if it was on the uh, TV broadcast or I was listening to uh, – I think the um, the Saints uh, radio broadcast on Sirius XM. Um, the comment was made, which is probably one of the worst things you can say about a quarterback. Uh, Dalton is doing a good job of managing the game. And, you know, uh, and tr- go ahead, Troy Aikman. I, I just I, you said that, and it triggered because they were talking about it uh, before the game actually started. And Troy Aikman, on I think, Monday took offense. Night, yeah. It's correct. Yeah. He took offense to that. And, well, I mean, look, Roger, I mean, you, you know, if, if you're going to sit there and you're going to pencil your lineup in and you're going to say that Andy Dalton's your quarterback, you know, game management might might be too positive of, of a way to describe how he would be the quarterback. You know what I mean? I know that it's not a – it's more of a negative term than, than positive, but at the end of the day, I mean, I mean, you know. Might be a what, fact of life. Yeah. Well, I mean, what, what – you know, look, you, you can't win in the NFL without an elite quarterback. You know, and, and I think as an example, you know, everybody got their panties in a bunch when Russell Wilson went to, you know, uh, Denver. Denver. Uh, you know, yeah. he's going to be the next coming, and he's so good, and he's elite quarterback and all these different things. Well, Seattle has Geno Smith, and they have a better yeah. record than the Broncos do. So that's right. Let me tell you something. I, I never thought that Russell Wilson was an elite quarterback. You know, when we had any any level of conversation about it, I mean, there's only a handful of guys that you can turn to and look at and say, "Wow, man, they they, they can." I mean, and you got Allen, you got Mahomes. I mean, you, you know, you have. I mean, I'd put Lamar Jackson in in that category uh, only because. Yeah. You know, he, he can win football games based on what he does. Um, you know, I think Father Time has their grips on guys like Brady and Rodgers and some of those guys. Uh, but at the end of the day, I mean, there's only a handful of guys that are actually elite quarterbacks that can be game changers. You know, there's a lot of guys that are game managers that, you know, I mean, if they have the right pieces around them, 
Yeah, I mean, look, the Ravens won a Super Bowl with with thinking uh, uh, Trent Dilfer as their quarterback. Yeah. You know what I mean? Let's let's talk about it. <laughs> well, let me ask you this. Hey, let me ask because one, one thing that did surprise me a little bit about Harbaugh, and uh, you know, he did take Jackson out in the end, but I would I would have thought he would have taken him out a lot sooner than he did. Uh, you know, the game was the game was lost. There was no way they were going to that. You know that. New Orleans is going to make any kind of a comeback or do anything against the against the Ravens, and right. you know he ran a couple of plays there the last two times he was in, mm-hmm. and I'm saying to myself, boy, oh boy, you don't need him now. Well, why? Right. And he did take him out. In fairness, he did take him out, but I thought he waited too long. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, look, I think you can look at the Ravens' uh, season and know that they've kind of gagged a couple leads. Uh, yeah, know, Buffalo, Miami. Um, you know, the only three. I mean, they could be legitimately undefeated based on how they've actually played football this year, minus, you know, those relapses, if you will, of not finishing the football game. So I don't know if that's somewhere in the back of his mind that, you know, look, we're just going to play four quarters and finish this football game and, and be done with it um, or not. I mean, the the knock on Harbaugh isn't his preparation, isn't his staff, isn't, isn't his talent or the personnel or any of those sorts of things. It's always been his game management. Um you know, we're we going for one, we're going for two, we're going for this on fourth down. I mean, you know, we call a timeout. I mean, all those sorts of things have always been kind of the, the bugaboo of, of the criticism, I think, on him. And That was he's Andy Reid's criticism too, Doug, to well, be honest with people, you. People are going to point to this whole BS analytics and, you know, we have people that, you know, work these statistical outcomes of if we do this now and that happens and, you know, the – the dog grabs the bone and, you know, whatever. I mean, you know, it's just, it's crazy. You know, (laughs) they start that now in the game, you get to the third quarter, they're they're telling you the scores, let's say uh, 17 to nine. And they start telling you how much, oh yeah, we know they have a 77% chance of winning this game. I I mean, what the heck are we doing here? I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. Hey, look, Don, I want to, I want to make one point. I don't know where we are in the lineup here, but, um, with regard to the Orioles, uh, they have declined the option. Uh, it was an $11 million option for Jordan Lyles, who actually pitched uh, pretty well for them last year, 32-year-old starter that logged about 180 innings and, and then pitched pretty well for them. They declined that option to uh, have him rejoin the Orioles for next year. That was kind of the first domino, if you will, of, of the offseason for them. Um, I know that they've been rumored to spend some money this offseason on – um, hopefully some parts that can help them take that next step. I think that Mike Elias is interested in making the playoffs next year, and I think he's going to. All right, Doug, you hit it right on the head. Yeah. Tick-tock, we're out of time. Right Thank on. you very much again. <laughs> Thank you to all our guests. Roger, we'll do it again next week with Frank. Thank you, everybody, for listening. We'll be back. Bye. Absolutely. God bless, Frank. Thank you for putting all of this together. God bless. Okay, thanks, guys. Ladies and gentlemen, this program is brought to you each and every night of the week in grateful appreciation. Be nice. Men and women in the United States Armed Forces, men and women, police and fire services. When you're out there and you see somebody in uniform, please take the time to let them know you're there, especially on Friday. This Friday is, is Veterans Day. Please let them know that you, you appreciate everything they've done to keep your freedom the way it is. This program is dedicated to those who have lost their lives in line of duty. Deputy Robert Anthony Carroll, Patrol Jeffrey Yolds. I'm sorry. Colcat, Patrolman uh, David Curtis, Patrolman Jeffrey Yazowitz, Sergeant Thomas Bager, Sergeant Ricky Wills, uh, sorry, <clears throat> excuse me, 
the detective well, we radio bell. Charlie Connor, Carver Springs Police Department, Deputy Chief Mike Gowan, Fire Department, Lieutenant Joyce Craig Lewis, Owens Fire Department, Sergeant James O'Connor, Philadelphia Police Department, Sergeant Charles Levick, Hillsborough County Sheriff's Department, Patrolman Charlie, I'm sorry, no, not for Christmas, Lakeland PD, Lieutenant Joe Zerber, Newcastle County Police, Patrol Deputy Josh Meyer, Nassau County Sheriff's Department, Captain Matt Laterno, Philadelphia Fire Department, Captain Chris Leach, Wilmington Fire Department, Lieutenant Arthur Hope, Wilmington Fire Department. Lieutenant Jerry Fikes, Wilmington Fire Department. Trooper Joe Bullock, Florida Highway Patrol. Trooper Chelsea Richards, Florida Highway Patrol. Chief Al Hogan, Longwood Key Police Department. Chief Jimmy Ford, Wilmington Fire Department. <clears throat> Patrol Deputy Mike Hourcraft, Hillsborough County Sheriff's Department. I'm sorry, Pinellas County Sheriff's Department. And, and Deputy Blaine Lane, Hillsborough County uh, Sheriff's Department. My brothers and sisters, maybe 10-7 at this point in time, and sometime will be 10-10 at the table of the Lord. Until that time, when the rosary is up to meet you, may the winds be always at your back. May the rain fall softly on your fields, and the sunshine lightly on your face. Until we meet again, may the good Lord keep you and your families always in the hollow of his hand. Good night, God bless, and have a great week. Shema Hezahilma Sona Shenevoratfet Hakuig again, my Elma
All units be advised. 1999. End of, end of service.